Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me. On today's episode, we will continue to talk about holy orders, the sacrament of holy orders. And when I think of holy orders, so there are three degrees of the sacrament of holy orders, those of bishops or the episcopacy, those of priests or the presbyterate, and then those of deacons or the diaconate. I think of um, an interaction I had with a bishop one time, and it was kind of a remote interaction, where it was when I was teaching in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia at one of our high schools here, and it was graduation, and um, Bishop Daniel Thomas uh, came to officiate the the graduations. We're all gathered. It was a, it was a fairly large school. We're all gathered, family and friends of the graduates, teachers, administration, um, you know, yeah, family, friends, etc. Uh, gathered to see the the graduates and their cer- ceremony. All the graduates are in you know cap and gown, beautifully done hair, and clean shaven faces and. Um, they're sitting in the first few rows and then the teachers, we sat directly behind the students and then family and friends were gathered in various seats around the auditorium. So Bishop Thomas is up on stage. He's addressing the graduates and he's talking about, he, I would have put him in maybe like his early to mid fifties. Um, he was talking about how times have changed since, um, he was graduating high school. So he said, um, you know, the music has changed, Um, TV shows have changed, technology has changed, and then he points to his garb, so he's wearing the full, you know, bishop's regalia, um, has his his crozier and and mitre, and he says, as he, he, you know, addresses what he's wearing, he says, my clothes have changed. Well, I am, I'm allowed talker to begin with. Um, so my my youngest brother, Matthew, I was 14 when he was born. So when he reached the kind of like awkward teenage years where everything was embarrassing, he, he would very often tell me to talk more quietly in public because I was embarrassing him. And um, to this day, I'm, I'm often tasked at bridal showers and baby showers to be the announcer of the um, the festivities and the games like, okay, everyone time to pick up the cards on your table and fill in the baby shower bingo. So either God made me with a teacher voice cause he knew he would call me to be a teacher or I've developed a teacher voice over time as a result of being a teacher. Anyway, I talk loudly and I love to laugh. So in the, the words of Elizabeth from Jane Austen's pride and prejudice, I dearly love to laugh. So Bishop Thomas addressing his garb says, and my clothes are different. Well, I go from the middle of the auditorium. Ha The whole graduating class turns around and looks at me as I melt into my seat. <laughs> so it provided an opportunity for any students who were, you know, nervous about their graduation, about walking across the stage, um, to just forget that for the moment because their theology teacher was much more embarrassing and embarrassed. <laughs> So when I think of bishops, I often think of that interaction. God bless Bishop Thomas, wherever he is. Um, we'll talk about the about holy orders in terms of priests today. And I just want to note in passing, before we go to 
paragraph 1577, a paragraph that appears towards the end of our reading selection. That's paragraph 1584. And it addresses something we've now talked about a couple times. And that's that no matter the disposition of the priest, whether he's living a very virtuous and holy life or he's living a life that is filled with sin and lacking in virtue, we are guaranteed by Christ to receive the graces of the sacrament as long as the sacrament is carried out um, properly the correct words are spoken and you know either the the water is poured the chrism is placed on someone's forehead etc as long as it's properly confected affected carried out then we receive the the grace of the sacraments so i just want to read this paragraph paragraph 1584 where saint augustine who is the most quoted saint of the catechism talks about the power of the sacraments and how they pass through the minister, just like light passes through glass, um, however good or bad that minister might be, however clean or dirty that that glass might be. So I thought it was just a, a pretty interesting and um, memorable passage from the Catechism. So paragraph 1584 says this, since it is ultimately Christ who acts and affects salvation through the ordained minister, the unworthiness of the latter, so the unworthiness of the minister of the sacrament, does not prevent Christ from acting. St. Augustine states this forcefully. He says, as for the proud minister, he is to be ranked with the devil. Christ's gift is not thereby profaned. What flows through him keeps its purity, and what passes through him remains clear and reaches the fertile earth. The spiritual power of the sacrament is indeed comparable to light. Those to be enlightened receive it in its purity, and if it should pass through defiled beings, it is not itself defiled. Dang, that is, as the catechism says, forceful language, but I think beautifully and clearly illustrates um, the, the power of the sacraments and how awesome Christ is and that he promises to give us grace, grace, and all the grace he has in store for us through these sacraments, no matter how worthy or unworthy the minister of that particular sacrament is. So praise God for that. All right, let's go back to paragraph 1577, which talks about who can receive the sacrament of holy orders. We'll talk a little bit about the male priesthood, and then we'll talk about the celibacy of the priesthood and you know, why these things are. So paragraph 1577 under who can receive this sacrament says, only a baptized man, Veer, validly receives sacred ordination. The Lord Jesus chose men, Veri, to form the college of the 12 apostles. And the apostles did the same when they chose collaborators to succeed them in their ministry. The college of bishops with whom the priests are united in the priesthood makes the college of the 12 to the 12 apostles, an ever-present and ever-active reality until Christ's return. The church recognizes herself to be bound by this choice made by the Lord himself. For this reason, the ordination of women is not possible. So those last two sentences, I think, are, are very important. The church recognizes herself to be bound by this choice made by the Lord himself. And for this reason, the ordination of women is not possible. So only a baptized man validly receives the sacrament, uh, excuse me, yeah, the sacrament of sacred ordination. Um, this is one of those teachings of the church, practices of the church where, you know, people will say like the church is old fashioned. When will the church get with the times? We saw this a lot when uh, Pope Francis, who is a, a very different pope from from other popes we've seen in his demeanor, the way he speaks, um, his background, when he was named pope. 
so many people, you know, media news outlets, um, the average person in the pew were saying, um, you know, oh, now like the church is going to get with the times. Like this is the moment where the church steps into the 21st century or this is where the church gets with the times. And we've seen one that did not happen. So the the teaching, the truth of Jesus Christ as the same today, tomorrow, and yesterday, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and will continue to be, by the grace of God, faithfully handed on by the church. It's not up to the church to change or update um, or do anything with the, the teachings that Christ has entrusted to her, except faithfully hand them on, continue to clarify, interpret, and um, put them before the faithful. Secondly, given how much crazier the world has gotten uh, since Pope Francis became Pope, um, praise God for the the consistency, the constancy of the church, really God working in and through the church. Because if it were left to us, to our, if we were left to our own devices, we would have changed things. We would have probably conformed to the world. Um, so I'd like to point out two things from this paragraph. And one is this language of uh, the ordination. Oh, sorry. First, the church recognizes herself to be bound by this choice made by the Lord himself. So I would often say to my students as they would question anything from the male priesthood to, um, you know, some of the moral issues like like contraception or abortion to really profound uh, theological insights and questions um, like why did Christ have to die on a cross? He is God, so he could have just snapped his fingers and, and you know, saved us all from sin, opened the gates of heaven. So to each of these questions, I would often start with, we are Christians or Christians, and so we look to what Christ did. So we follow Christ. We look to what Christ did, humbly recognizing that he's God and we're not, and so he knows what he's about. He knows um, he, he it wasn't haphazard what he did and said and taught. Uh, it was very intentional, and it was intentional intentionality born of God. Okay, so not a, a finite human being a sinful creature like myself, um, who couldn't see, you know, past past the week, um, but could see, you know, humanity traversing millennia. So we look to what Christ did, and we follow that as Christians or Christians. If Christ wanted to, he could have chosen of his twelve apostles, his first priests, his first bit first bishops. He could have um, chosen a woman. He could have chosen six women, made it nice and even, half and half. He could have chosen 12 women, uh, Christ who is God, who could, could have done anything any way he wanted. In fact, he had the most perfect woman right in front of him in his own home who would have made uh, an incredible apostle, an incredible priest and, and first bishop, the Blessed Mother, born free of original sin. Um, and not inclined to sin or selfishness, not having concupiscence like the rest of us, would have been a fabulous apostle, uh, a fabulous priest and bishop. He, he could have chosen her, but he didn't. And so we look to that. If we don't completely understand it, which I conjecture that if we, we think about it, we read about it, we pray about it, uh, we will begin to understand, and it makes beautiful logical sense. But if we, you know, haven't gotten that far, we, we don't quite have the time to read about it or we haven't yet thought to, to pray about it, we can just, um, at a basic level, look to Christ and have faith, have confidence that he could have done it, but he didn't, okay? And as we, we follow him in that, we can begin to understand. 
So who was it? I want to say it was St. Ambrose who said, um, I don't understand so as to believe. Maybe it was St. Augustine, but I believe so as to understand. Um, so oftentimes when we, we start walking the walk, uh, we, we follow Christ, then our eyes are opened, our ears are opened, our minds are opened to understand like, oh, that's why you did that. That makes sense. Secondly, my students would often say, oh, Christ probably didn't pick women apostles because women were not as considered um, or not considered as important as men at the time, or women were kind of considered inferior, looked down upon in society. To which I would respond, do you think Christ cared what people thought at the time? <laughs> okay. He was, we still remember him for eating with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, um, he, he did not get, and, and the Pharisees and Sadducees and others gave him a ton of flack for that. Um, he, he didn't care, okay, what people thought. He didn't care what people thought so much so that he was willing to be crucified for it. And so had he wanted to choose women for his apostles, um, he would have. Next, priests act, as we talked about in the last episode, in persona Christi or in the person of Christ, how did the second person of the Trinity, Christ, God himself, take on human flesh, but as a male? Okay, so again, Christ could have come as a woman, and we believe that God is above and beyond gender, so men and women both come from God, but when he steps into our human timeline, he steps into our t human timeline as a man, so he takes on male human flesh, and then the priests, the bishops, who act in persona Christi, in the person of Christ for ages to come, um, are male as Christ was male or took on male human flesh. If you want to understand this a little bit more, uh, Pope John Paul II wrote The Theology of the Body, with which I'm sure many of you are familiar, and he beautifully, although sometimes a little um, philosophically in a hard hard to understand way goes through the the difference and the complementarity of the sexes of, of being man and being woman and some of the implications of maleness and femaleness um, so I, I recommend Dr. Mikhail Waldstein's uh, translation of Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body that's a pretty thick book um, and you know takes a little while to go through well worth the read. But I also recommend um, Christopher West and then a number of, of authors have since written about the theology of the body where they break down the theology of the body in a, a number of ways or um, under a number of, uh, focusing on a number of, of specific topics within the theology of the body. So if you want to read more on um, the male priesthood, I recommend uh, looking into Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. <clears throat> um, second thing I want to point out from this paragraph is that last line about the ordination of women is not possible. And again, I talked about this a little bit in a previous episode in reference to a different topic, and that's that it's not that the church says, like, you women can't be priests. The church simply says, it's not possible because Christ has entrusted this truth to us. It's our job not to change or transform or update his teachings, but simply to hand them on so that Rebecca Doherty in 2023 can get the same truth that Christ was preaching, you know, to Peter and Mary Magdalene and, you know, anyone who might be, be, uh, in his midst over 2000 years ago. Um, 
when I've talked about uh, Father Matt, this priest with whom I used to teach at um, one of the high schools where I taught, and he had this um, this kind of like shtick where when he was not himself teaching classes or didn't have something immediately to attend to, he would kind of like walk the halls of the school and kind of peek in and see what different classes were doing. And he would often walk by my classroom. There's a little window in the door. And he would kind of give me this high sign, like, is it okay to interrupt? If I said yes, he would come in and be like, hey, guys, so what are we doing? What are we talking about? And the kids, one, they loved Father Matt, so they loved when he would come to visit. But two, they loved the interruption, like, ooh, we can put aside our, you know, our textbooks, our notes for the moment, and just, like, chat about, um, you know, the church and our faith and Jesus. So this one time, Father Matt came into my classroom. You know, he was asking the kids, like, what do you want to talk about? What do you have questions about? And a student raised her hand and said, um, you know, Father Matt, why can't women be priests? And he just looked at her. He said, why can't I be a nun? <laughs> and it wasn't – she kind of looked, like, puzzled back at him. It didn't fully explain um, the answer to the question. But I thought it was insightful in that it uh, pointed to the fact that there's so many different vocations and states of life – and we are each created in unique ways. We're called to unique jobs and positions and roles. And um, we're, we're all equal in dignity. Okay, God loves us all profoundly. But he calls us to different things. And how beautiful and textured and dynamic is the body of Christ. Okay, so the as St. Paul says, the... The eye is not the hand. The hand is not the foot. And thank God for the eye and the foot and the hand, each doing, being different and doing each of their different things, serving their different roles. And so um, the male priesthood is an easy one to point to because it's, you know, often viewed as like an oppressive patriarchal, patriarchal remnant, you know, leftover from the early church or back in the day. But it speaks to the the body of Christ and kind of the beauties and joys, but also the sorrows and sufferings that come along with, um, you know, e each vocation or each state in life. So when I'm pregnant with, when I've been pregnant with each of our children, sometimes I look longingly over at Dan as he's drinking a beer or, um, I don't know, do it like going out for a run or going to the gym. And I'm like, mm, sitting on the couch, not supposed to be drinking alcohol and up for no run and no time at the gym. And I think like, huh, it'd be so nice not to be pregnant or to be the man in this relationship where, you know, I as the husband can, you know, affirm my wife who's who's carrying our children. But then I think immediately after that, like how incredible that I get to, um, by the grace of God, you know, carry this life within me, allow each of these children to grow within me and then give birth to them. And, um, you know, Dan doesn't doesn't get to do that, and it's it's hard to be pregnant, but it's also such a gift and a a privilege, um, an honor to be able to form a little life, you know, in in my womb. This makes me think of for any Jim Gaffigan fans out there, you, you're familiar with this this shtick. He talks about uh, so Jim Gaffigan is a, a comedian who who practices Catholicism, and he says, um, you know, it's just it's just incredible what the female body can do. I mean, a woman can can conceive, has the capacity to conceive a life. Her body can then grow that little life for nine months. Her body then pushes that new life out, or it's taken out of her, and then she goes on to feed and nourish, or oftentimes has the, the capacity, has the capacity, oftentimes does, nourish that, that child afterwards. 
He goes, and what's the male contribution? Our contribution is like 15 seconds, and it's the one thing we think about all day. <laughs> so in a very funny way, he um, compliments the, the capacity of women. So w- whether or not a woman you know, does get pregnant, does give birth, and does, let's say, nurse, nurse a child, um, how incredible that women have the capacity to do that. But that also comes with, you know, there's... That, that's hard. That's Those are hard things to do. And so to relate that to the priesthood, I think, um, you know, it's, I, I imagine it's very hard to be a priest. It's very hard to be a priest in today's day and age, but it's hard to be a priest, um, I think, of the loneliness. So, you know, as, as crazy as our household can get sometimes, I am never lonely. <laughs> There's always someone who's up for a chat or a snuggle um, or who needs something. And um, so loneliness is is far from my experience. But I imagine for priests, you know, as they, after having said mass, um, after having heard confessions, they go back to the, the quiet of their room. And, um, you know, it can be, has the potential to be quite lonely. Um, but how awesome on the flip side that they have the capacity to confect, to take bread and wine and make it, by the grace of God, into the body and blood of Jesus Christ to hold God in their hands. Like, what an awesome power. And so I say all these things um, to point to we are each called to different things, and those things come with joys and sorrows. And so while it's very easy, I think, in today's day and age to say, like, you know, down with the male priesthood, Uh, women should be priests too, Um, it's not that the church is saying, like, no, 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 we're going to continue to oppress women. The church is saying, like, hey, this is the teaching that Christ has entrusted to us. Um, God became man as a male, and he then set up the priesthood to act in persona Christi. And so we, it's not up to us to change it. We simply hand on what, what God has entrusted to us. And then again, the, the more we think about this, the more we read about this, the more we pray on this, it, it really makes sense. Um that these men act in persona Christi who took on human flesh as a man. And so as St. Catherine of Siena said, uh, be who you were made to be and you'll set the world on fire. Lord, please give each of us the grace, no matter who we are, where we are, and to what you are calling us, what you know, big vocation, small vocation, please help us to embrace that peacefully, joyfully, with vivacity, so that we can set the world on fire that all may come to know you, love you, and be with you from now until forever. All right, last paragraph at which I would like to look is paragraph 1579, which speaks to the celibacy of the priesthood. So we talk about the male, talked about the male priesthood. Now we'll talk just briefly about the celibacy of the priesthood. Paragraph 1579 says, All the ordained ministers of the Latin church, with the exception of permanent deacons, are normally chosen from among men of faith who live a celibate life and who intend to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Called to consecrate themselves with undivided heart to the Lord and to the affairs of the Lord, they give themselves entirely to God and to men. Celibacy is a sign of this new life to the service of which the church's minister is consecrated, accepted with a joyous heart, Celibacy radiantly proclaims the reign of God. So while the male priesthood will never change, we will never have women priests in the Catholic Church, celibacy is something that has changed and actually could change, and we see exceptions even now. So for example, um, if an Anglican minister converts, and he is married, converts to Catholicism, he remains, can remain uh, married 
and be ordained a priest in the Latin church. In a number of the Eastern Catholic churches, so in 1054, there was a schism between East and West. Um, you're probably familiar with like Eastern Orthodox churches, uh, Russian Orthodox churches, etc. cetera. Uh, a number of those churches have actually come back into communion with Rome, and so they retain their um, kind of uh, cultural differences within the liturgies. Um, however, they are connected to the, the Pope in Rome. <clears throat> and so um, we see, I remember when I was a sophomore at Steubenville, um, there was a guy who was preparing for ordination to the priesthood in an Eastern Catholic church, and um, he married before being ordained a priest. So he was a, a married priest. We also think, uh, we can think of um, Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law in the scriptures, implying that Peter was married. We can think on uh, certain times in history where um, nepotism occurs. So uh, ordained men who had risen to the level of bishop or to positions of power start giving parishes, um, other things, other favors to family members. And so the church discerns in her wisdom that uh, we can, I don't know if you would say return to, but look to, first, the example of Christ, who the high priest who was unmarried. We can look to people like St. Paul, um, other church members, other saints who remained unmarried, quote unquote, for the kingdom and how very practically it's, it's helpful on a number of levels. So I think of, I think of Dan and our own family. Um, were he a priest in charge of a parish or serving at a parish in addition to being married and helping to, you know, or raising with me, not helping? <laughs> Sometimes the kids will say, if I'm going out with a, a friend, the kids will ask, is dad going to babysit us tonight? And I'll say, no, he's going to be your dad. <laughs> so Dan doesn't help me raise the children together. Dan and I raise the children. If he were then called to, you know, say mass and hear confessions and run Bible studies, um, it would be, it would be very tough on both or on all of the above marriage, family, and parishioners. And so in addition to um, uh, looking to Christ as our exemplar, um, who was, was celibate, um, we can think of, of the practical implications of a married priesthood and see the, the wisdom in the church in requiring men to remain celibate. So we think on we can think of that that passage from St. Paul where he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 actually I'll just read it. He says, "I should like you to be free of anxieties. An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is anxious about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and he is divided." Um, then we skip down. Da, 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 da. I'm telling you this for your own benefit, not to impose a restraint upon you, but for the sake of propriety and adherence to the Lord without distraction. So very practically speaking, it's um, it's helpful, very helpful to the church that our priests make this sacrifice to remain celibate so that their, deten their, <laughs> detention, their attention is undivided and it's on the things of the Lord and the people that the Lord has, whom the Lord has entrusted to him. So uh, thank you, any priests who might be listening for your, for taking the vow of celibacy and for putting the Lord and us above other people and things. We, th we thank you for that.
And while I'm at it, thank you for the other sacrifices you make. We, we have a priest friend who said one time, when you consider the three vows that, that many priests take, so poverty, chastity, and obedience, um, he said, like, ah, celibacy, that's, like, the, the easiest of the three. You know, after the first few years, like, you get over the idea of ever having sex again. He goes, now the obedience, that's really the hard part. So thank you to our priests for the vows that you have taken um, out of love for the Lord and love for us. All right, so we'll take a a brief break and then return on the second side to read more on the Sacrament of Holy Orders. We'll read paragraphs 1554 through 1589. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. And welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1554 through 1589. The three degrees of the sacrament of holy orders. The divinely instituted ecclesiastical ministry is exercised in different degrees by those who even from ancient times have been called bishops, priests, and deacons. Catholic doctrine expressed in the liturgy, the magisterium, and the constant practice of the church recognizes that there are two degrees of ministerial participation in the priesthood of Christ the episcopacy, and the presbyterate. The diaconate is intended to help and serve them. For this reason, the term sacerdos in current usage denotes bishops and priests but not deacons. Yet Catholic doctrine teaches that the degrees of priestly participation, episcopate and presbyterate, and the degree of service, diaconate, are all three conferred by a sacramental act called ordination, that is, by the sacrament of holy orders. Let every, everyone revere the deacons as Jesus Christ, the bishop as the image of the Father, and the presbyters as the Senate of God and the Assembly of the Apostles. For without them, one cannot speak of the church. Episcopal ordination, fullness of the sacrament of holy orders. Amongst those various offices which have been exercised in the church from the earliest times, the chief place, according to the witness of tradition, is held by the function of those who, through their appointment to the dignity and responsibility of bishop, and in virtue consequently of the unbroken succession going back to the beginning, are regarded as transmitters of the apostolic line. To fulfill their exalted mission, the apostles were endowed by Christ with a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit coming upon them, and by the imposition of hands they passed on to their auxiliaries the gift of the Spirit, which is transmitted down to our day through Episcopal consecration. The Second Vatican Council teaches that the fullness of the Sacrament of Holy Orders is conferred by Episcopal consecration, that fullness, namely which, both in the liturgical tradition of the Church and the language of the Fathers of the Church, is called the High Priesthood, the Acme or Summa of the Sacred Ministry. Episcopal consecration confers, together with the office of sanctifying, also the offices of teaching and ruling. In fact, by the imposition of hands and through the words of the consecration, the grace of the Holy Spirit is given, and a sacred character is impressed in such wise that bishops, in an eminent and visible manner, take the place of Christ himself, teacher, shepherd, and priest, and act as his representative. By virtue, therefore, of the Holy Spirit who has been given to them, bishops have been constituted true and authentic teachers of the faith, and have been made pontiffs and pastors. One is constituted a member of the Episcopal body in virtue of the sacramental consecration and by the hierarchical communion with the head and members of the college. The character and collegial nature of the Episcopal order are evidenced among other ways by the church's ancient practice, which calls for several bishops to participate in the consecration of a new bishop. 
In our day, the lawful ordination of a bishop requires a special intervention of the Bishop of Rome because he is the supreme visible bond of the communion of the particular churches in the one church and the guarantor of their freedom. As Christ's vicar, each bishop has the pastoral care of the particular church entrusted to him, but at the same time he bears collegially with all his brothers in the episcopacy, the solicitude for all the churches. Though each bishop is the lawful pastor only of the portion of the flock entrusted to his care, as a legitimate successor of the apostles he is, by divine institution and precept, responsible with the other bishops for the apostolic mission of the church. The above considerations explain why the Eucharist celebrated by the bishops has a quite special significance as an expression of the church gathered around the altar with the one who represents Christ, the good shepherd and head of his church presiding. The ordination of priests, co-workers of the bishops. Christ, whom the Father hallowed and sent into the world, has, through his apostles, made their successors, the bishops, namely, sharers in his consecration and mission. And these, in their turn, duly entrusted in varying degrees various members of the church with the office of their ministry. The function of the bishop's ministry was handed over in a subordinate degree to priests so that they might be appointed in the order of the priesthood and be co-workers of the Episcopal order for the proper fulfillment of the apostolic mission that had been entrusted to it by Christ. Because it is joined with the Episcopal order, the office of priests shares in the authority by which Christ himself builds up and sanctifies and rules his body. Hence, the priesthood of priests, while presupposing the sacraments of initiation, is nevertheless conferred by its own particular sacrament. Through that sacrament, priests by the anointing of the Holy Spirit are signed with a special character and so are configured to Christ the priest in such a way that they are able to act in the person of Christ the head. Whilst not having the supreme degree of the pontifical office and notwithstanding the fact that they depend on the bishops in the exercise of their own proper power, the priests are for all that associated with them by reason of their sacerdotal dignity and in virtue of the sacrament of holy orders, after the image of Christ, the supreme and eternal priest. They are consecrated in order to preach the gospel and shepherd the faithful, as well as to celebrate divine worship as true priests of the New Testament. Through the sacrament of holy orders, priests share in the universal dimensions of the mission that Christ entrusted to the apostles. The spiritual gift they have received in ordination prepares them not for a limited and restricted mission, but for the fullest, in fact, the universal mission of salvation to the end of the earth, prepared in spirit to preach the gospel everywhere. It is in the Eucharistic cult or in the Eucharistic assembly of the faithful, the synaxis, that they exercise in a supreme degree their sacred office. There, acting in the person of Christ and proclaiming his mystery, they unite the votive offerings of the faithful to the sacrifice of Christ their head. And in the sacrifice of the Mass, they make present again and apply, until the coming of the Lord, the unique sacrifice of the New Testament, that namely of Christ offering himself once for all a spotless victim to the Father. From this unique sacrifice, their whole priestly ministry draws its strength. The priests, prudent cooperators of the Episcopal College and its support and instrument, called to the service of the people of God, constitute, together with their bishop, a unique sacerdotal college, a presbyterium dedicated, it is true, to a variety of distinct duties. In each local assembly of the faithful they represent, in a certain sense, the bishop, with whom they are associated in all trust and generosity. In part, they take upon themselves his duties and solicitude, and in their daily toils discharge them. Priests can exercise their ministry only in dependence on the bishop and in communion with him. 
the promise of obedience they make to the bishop at the moment of ordination and the kiss of peace from him at the end of the ordination liturgy mean that the bishop considers them his co-workers, his sons, his brothers, and his friends, and that they in return owe him love and obedience. All priests who are constituted in the order of priesthood by the sacrament of order are bound together by an intimate sacramental brotherhood, but in a special way they form one priestly body in the diocese to which they are attached under their own bishop. The unity of the presbyterium finds liturgical expression in the custom of the presbyter's imposing hands after the bishop during the rite of ordination, the ordination of deacons in order to serve. At a lower level of the hierarchy are to be found deacons who receive the imposition of hands not unto the priesthood but unto the ministry. At an ordination to the diaconate, only the bishop lays hands on the candidate, thus signifying the deacon's special attachment to the bishop in the tasks of his diaconia. Deacons share in Christ's mission and grace in a special way. The sacrament of holy orders marks them with an imprint or character which cannot be removed and which configures them to Christ, who made himself the deacon or servant of all. Among other tasks, it is the task of deacons to assist the bishop and priests in the celebration of the divine mysteries, above all the Eucharist, in the distribution of Holy Communion, in assisting at and blessing marriages, in the proclamation of the gospel and preaching, in presiding over funerals, and in dedicating themselves to the various ministries of charity. Since the Second Vatican Council, the Latin Church has restored the diaconate as a proper and permanent rank of the hierarchy, while the churches of the East had always maintained it. This permanent diaconate, which can be conferred on married men, constitutes an important enrichment for the Church's mission. Indeed, it is appropriate and useful that men who carry out a truly diaconal ministry in the Church, whether in its liturgical and pastoral life or whether in its social and charitable works, should be strengthened by the imposition of hands which has come down from the apostles. They would be more closely bound to the altar and their ministry, excuse me, and their ministry would be made more fruitful through the sacramental grace of the diaconate. The celebration of this sacrament. Given the importance that the ordination of a bishop, a priest, or a deacon has for the life of the particular church, its celebration calls for as many of the faithful as possible to take part. It should take place preferably on Sunday, in the cathedral, with solemnity appropriate to the occasion. All three ordinations of the bishop, of the priest, and of the deacon follow the same movement. Their proper place is within the Eucharistic liturgy. The essential rite of the Sacrament of Holy Orders, Holy Orders for all three degrees consists in the bishop's imposition of hands on the head of the ordinand and in the bishop's specific consecratory prayer asking God for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and his gifts proper to the ministry to which the candidate is being ordained. As in all the sacraments, additional rites surround the celebration. Varying greatly among the different liturgical traditions, these rites have in common the expression of the multiple aspects of sacramental grace. Thus, in the Latin Church, the initial rites, presentation and election of the ordinand, instruction by the bishop, examination of the conscience, excuse me, the candidate, litany of the saints, attest that the choice of the candidate is made in keeping with the practice of the church and prepare for the solemn act of consecration, after which several rites symbolically express and complete the mystery accomplished. For bishop and priest, an anointing with holy chrism, a sign of the special anointing of the Holy Spirit who makes their ministry fruitful, giving the book of the gospels, the ring, the mitre, and the crozier to the bishop as the sign of his apostolic mission to proclaim the word of God of his fidelity to the church, the bride of Christ, and his office as shepherd of the Lord's flock, presentation to the priest of the patent and chalice, the offering of the holy people, which he is called to present to God, 
giving the book of the Gospels to the deacon who has just received the mission to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Who can confer the sacrament? Christ himself chose the apostles and gave them a share in his mission and authority. Raised to the Father's right hand, he has not forsaken his flock, but he keeps it under his constant protection through the apostles and guides it still through these same pastors who continue his work today. Thus it is Christ whose gift it is that some be apostles, others pastors. He continues to act through the bishops. Since the sacrament of holy orders is the sacrament of the apostolic ministry, it is for the bishops as the successors of the apostles to hand on the gift of the Spirit, the apostolic line. Validly ordained bishops, for example, those who are in the line of apostolic succession, validly confer the three degrees of the sacrament of holy orders. Who can receive this sacrament? Only a baptized man, vir, validly receives sacred ordination. The Lord Jesus chose men, viri, to form the college of the twelve apostles, and the apostles did the same when they chose collaborators to succeed them in their ministry. The college of bishops, with whom the priests are united in the priesthood, makes the college of the twelve an ever-present and ever-active reality until Christ's return. The church recognizes herself to be bound by this choice made by the Lord himself. For this reason, the ordination of women is not possible. No one has a right to receive the sacrament of holy orders. Indeed, no one claims this office for himself. He is called to it by God. Anyone who thinks he recognizes the signs of God's call to the ordained ministry must humbly submit his desire to the authority of the church, who has the responsibility and right to call someone to receive orders. Like every grace, the sacrament can be received only as an unmerited gift. All the ordained ministers of the Latin church, with the exception of permanent deacons, are normally chosen from among men of faith who live a celibate life and who intend to remain celibate for the kingdom of heaven. Called to consecrate themselves with undivided heart to the Lord and to the affairs of the Lord, they give themselves entirely to God and to men. Celibacy is a sign of this new life to the service of which the church's minister is consecrated. Accepted with a joyous heart, celibacy radiantly proclaims the reign of God. In the Eastern churches, a different discipline has been enforced for many centuries. While bishops are chosen solely from among celibates, married men can be ordained as deacons and priests. This practice has long been considered legitimate. These priests exercise a fruitful ministry within their communities. Moreover, priestly celibacy is held in great honor in the Eastern churches, and many priests have freely chosen it for the sake of the kingdom of God. In the East, as in the West, a man who has already received the sacrament of holy orders can no longer marry. The Effects of the Sacrament of Holy Orders The Indelible Character This sacrament configures the recipient to Christ by a special grace of the Holy Spirit, so that he may serve as Christ's instrument for his church. By ordination, one is enabled to act as a representative of Christ, head of the church, in his triple office of priest, prophet, and king. As in the case of baptism and confirmation, this share in Christ's office is granted once for all. The sacrament of holy orders, like the other two, confers an indelible spiritual character and cannot be repeated or conferred temporarily. It is true that someone validly ordained can, for grave reasons, be discharged from the obligations and functions linked to ordination, or can be for forbidden to exercise them. But he cannot become a layman again in the strict sense, because the character imprinted by ordination is forever. The vocation and mission received on the day of his ordination mark him permanently. Since it is ultimately Christ who acts and effects salvation through the ordained minister, the unworthiness of the latter does not prevent Christ from acting. St. Augustine states this forcefully. As for the proud minister, he is to be ranked with the devil. Christ's gift is not thereby profaned. 
What flows through him keeps its purity, and what passes through him remains clear and reaches the fertile earth. The spiritual power of the sacrament is indeed comparable to light. Those to be enlightened receive it in its purity, and if it should pass through defiled beings, it is not itself defiled. The Grace of the Holy Spirit The grace of the Holy Spirit proper to the sacrament is configuration to Christ as priest, teacher, and pastor, of whom the ordained is made a minister. For the bishop, this is first of all a grace of strength, the governing spirit, prayer of Episcopal consecration in the Latin rite. The grace to guide and defend his church with strength and prudence as a father and pastor, with gratuitous love for all and a preferential love for the poor, the sick, and the needy. This grace impels him to proclaim the gospel to all, to be the model for his flock, to go before it on the way of sanctification by identifying himself in the Eucharist with Christ the priest and victim, not fearing to give his life for his sheep. Father, you know all hearts. You've chosen your servant for the office of bishop. May he be a shepherd to your holy flock and a high priest blameless in your sight, ministering to you day and night. May he always gain the blessing of your favor and offer the gifts of your holy church. Through the Spirit who gives the grace of high priesthood, grant him the power to forgive sins as you have commanded, to assign ministries as you have decreed, and to loose from every bond by the authority which you gave to your apostles. May he be pleasing to you by his gentleness and purity of heart, presenting a fragrant offering to you through Jesus Christ, your Son. The spiritual gift conferred by presbyteral ordination is expressed by this prayer of the Byzantine rite. The bishop, while laying on his hands, says among other things, Lord, fill with the gift of the Holy Spirit him whom you have deigned to raise to the rank of the priesthood, that he may be worthy to stand without reproach before your altar, to proclaim the gospel of your kingdom, to fulfill the ministry of your word of truth, to offer you spiritual gifts and sacrifices, to renew your people by the bath of rebirth, so that he may go out to meet our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, your only Son, on the day of his second coming. And may he receive from your vast goodness the recompense for a faithful administration of his order. With regard to deacons, strengthened by sacramental grace, they are dedicated to the people of God in conjunction with the bishop and his body of priests, in the service, diaconia, of the liturgy, of the gospel, and of works of charity. Before the grandeur of the priestly grace and office, the holy doctors felt an urgent call to conversion in order to conform their whole lives to him whose sacrament had made them ministers. Thus, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, a very young priest, exclaimed, We must begin by purifying ourselves before purifying others. We must be instructed to be able to instruct, become light to illuminate, draw close to God to bring him close to others, be sanctified to sanctify, lead by the hand and counsel prudently. I know whose ministers we are, where we find ourselves, and to where we strive. I know God's greatness and man's weakness, but also his potential. Who then is the priest? He is the defender of truth, who stands with angels, gives glory with archangels, causes sacrifices to rise to the altar on high, shares Christ's priesthood, refashions creation, restores it in God's image, recreates it for the world on high, and even greater is divinized and divinizes. And the holy cure of ours, so St. John Marie Vianney says, the priest continues the work of redemption on earth. If we really understood the priest on earth, we would die not of fright, but of love. The priesthood is the love of the heart of Jesus. This brings us to the end of our reading selection and the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me for another week.
Between this week and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast and on Facebook under Rebecca Doherty. Please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.